Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. In celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing, this two-part lecture examines art and photography created during the heroic age of Antarctic exploration from the end of the 19th century to 1922. The Antarctic expeditions of Robert Falcon Scott, Roald Amundsen, Ernest Shackleton, and Douglas Mawson were the equivalent of NASA's Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. Antarctica was the last place on Earth to be discovered and explored. It was, to many, like going to the moon. And indeed, photographs of the polar landscape resemble images of the lunar surface. Today, locations on the moon attest to the continuing link between the heroic accomplishments of Antarctic explorers and lunar astronauts. Shackleton, named after the Antarctic explorer, is an impact crater at the south pole of the moon. And NASA is now working to send American astronauts to the lunar south pole, a place no human has ever gone before. Artists and photographers, most notably Herbert Ponting and Frank Hurley, accompanied the various Antarctic expeditions. These artist explorers made photographs, films, paintings, and drawings that reveal the triumphs and tragedies of first attempts to reach the South Pole. In part one of this lecture, presented on November 19, 2019, senior lecturer David Gariff explores the artists and photographers who visually documented the Antarctic continent during this heroic age of 20th century exploration. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, <clears throat> my name is David Gariff, and I'm a senior lecturer here. And today I'm beginning a two-part um, lecture, today and Thursday, on art and photography in the heroic age of Antarctic uh, exploration. I'm showing you a couple of photographs on the screen right now. One is a photograph uh, by Olaf Bjarland, who was one of the members of the Amundsen expedition that did reach the South Pole. And uh, they reached the pole on December 16, 1911. And then on the right, I'm showing you a photograph taken by Neil Armstrong. Uh, and it shows Buzz Aldrin posing with the American flag on July 20, 1969. The way and the reason I'm giving this talk is in my small way to celebrate the uh, 50th anniversary of the uh, Apollo 11 moon landing. We currently have a photography show up that hopefully some of you have seen. It's called In the Light of the Silvery Moon, a Century of Lunar Photographs. So I wanted to tie this somehow to the a celebration. And this is, as I said, the 50th anniversary. So I was thinking of some way that I could bring these two topics together. And it wasn't, once I thought about it, it wasn't that difficult uh, because in essence, going to the Antarctic at the end of the 19th and early 20th century was essentially like going to the moon. And that was often discussed and those parallels were often um, uh, articulated. Uh, even for, in fact, the uh, American lunar astronauts, they had a great respect and interest and admiration for those polar explorers that we're going to be talking about. So the Antarctic expeditions of Robert Falcon Scott, Roald Amundsen, Ernest Shackleton, Douglas Mawson, uh, this, these were the explorers who were the great figures during what is called the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. I'll come back and talk more about 
specifically what that means in a second. Of course, artists and photographers accompanied these expeditions. And in the case of photography especially, we have the work of two very important photographers, uh, Herbert Ponting and Frank Hurley, who documented these expeditions. And so we do have a lot of uh, not, just photo, not just photography, but in fact, both of those individuals were filmmakers. And so we have three important films <clears throat> that were made <clears throat> on various expeditions as well. And I'll talk more about that when we get to that point. Uh, today, for example, on the surface of the moon, there is a, an impact crater that's named Shackleton. Uh, it's named for Ernest uh, Shackleton. And it lies at the south pole of the moon. And um, NASA is, in fact, preparing right now to have astronauts, humans, go where they've never gone before, and that is now to the south pole of the moon. Uh, so you can see these connections, they're rather, they're rather interesting. Now, the, uh, the first expeditions to uh, the Antarctic are tied to what we call the Age of Exploration, and this is an early age that goes back well into the 18th century and it really relates to the expeditions of whalers and sealers. So they, it, it wasn't specifically expeditions to discover these locations, but to hunt whale and, and seals. Uh, so some of the earliest voyages are in that period. But So that's the age of exploration. The age that we're going to talk about is this age, the heroic age of Antarctic exploration, which really begins at the end of the 19th century and ends with the final expedition of Shackleton, the so-called Quest Expedition, uh, which takes place in 1921-2022. So the heroic age dates from roughly 1895 to 1922. And then we have uh, the last age, which is the mechanical age of exploration. And that takes place after the First World War. Uh, and it's essentially related to explorers trying to get to the various locations through mechanical means, most specifically airplanes or airships, dirigibles, for example. Um, so that comes to be known as the mechanical age of exploration. The explorers I'm going to be concerned with are some of the people I've already mentioned, uh, Scott Amundsen, Shackleton, Mawson, the photographers I've mentioned already, Herbert Ponting, and Frank Hurley, and then two of the most important artists, although we'll look at more than these two, are uh, Edward Wilson, who accompanied Scott, uh, and George Marston, uh, who, who accompanied Shackleton. So let's go back to grade school and have a basic geography course that compares the Arctic here on the left to the Antarctic on the right. And you may have learned this little, it's not a really a rhyme, but it's kind of a paraphrase. The Arctic is a sea surrounded by land. That's what you see on the left. The Antarctic is land surrounded by sea. So they're completely opposite. The Arctic doesn't refer to a landmass. It refers to an ocean. And, and the Antarctic is, of course, a landmass. It's a continent. The Ant Antarctica is colder than the Arctic just to set the flora and fauna. 
there are no penguins in the Arctic. Uh, and there are no polar bears in the Antarctic. Um, so in the Arctic, you do find terrestrial animals. You find polar bears, reindeer, ar Arctic foxes. None of that is found in the uh, Antarctic. Because of Antarctic's unique situation, which is the fact that it's surrounded uh, by oceans, those oceans and the currents around it, Antarctica, act as a barrier to cut off Antarctica from the rest of the Earth's weather patterns. It has its own weather, essentially, because of the currents. The, the name, the term, Antarctica, comes from the Greek, comes from a Greek compound word, which simply means opposite to the Arctic. <laughs> uh, it is the Antarctic. Uh, so that's simple enough. Um, before I can really talk about Antarctica, I do want to talk about Arctic exploration since it, in many ways, uh, predates going south. So initially, everybody is going north and not going south. And artists are responding to various Arctic impulses. On the left is a painting by the great German romantic painter Gaspar David Friedrich. It's called Wreck in the Sea of Ice from 1798. You don't see that painting reproduced that often, but the one that everybody knows is the one on the right, which is Friedrich's The Sea of Ice, The Wreck of Hope from 1823-24. That's uh, one of the most famous paintings of the 19th century, and it's often, in fact, discussed as an example of the Arctic sublime. I'll have more to say about the sublime as we go along. but. In the winter of 1820-21, Friedrich witnessed these ice flows that were gathering on the Elbe River. And he was fascinated by the way they were sort of freezing and then pushing against each other and raising up. So he made a number of oil sketches of these ice flows on the river. And then uh, several years later, a couple years later, he took those sketches and turned them into this magnificent, heroic, painting. He increased the proportions of those ice flows to monumental scale. And you see these flows sort of pressuring and crashing against each other, although very slowly. But you have to look very carefully because to the right is, the, is a part of a ship that's being crushed in this ice. Uh, this painting has been discussed in a lot of different ways as a sort of Arctic sublime some people think it's a kind of pessimistic statement about and rejection of life. But the sky is turning blue up at the top of the picture. And probably Friedrich intended this painting to be a sort of transcendental reference to the idea of the hope of life after death. Here's a closer view. When we look at the, the stern of the ship on the right uh, and the pressure that's pushing against it, you can almost hear the cracking of the, of the wood I mention that now because later in the Antarctic, when Shackleton gets trapped in the ice in his ship, the Endurance, he will write about how this horrific sound of the pressure of the ice flows cracking his ship are sort of haunting him. Uh, so even here in this painting, it seems almost to be sort of forecast or, or predicted here. There is an inscription on the ship. It's hard to see in the slide. It's the HMS Griper, which was one of two ships that took part in an expedition by uh, William Perry uh, in 1819 uh, to 20 to try to reach the North Pole. It was not successful. 
But even here, the Griper was a ship that was already famous for this attempt on the part of Admiral Perry to make it to the, to the pole. I might mention now as well, I, I can't talk about everything in this talk, even though it's already two days. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but the history of these various ships is, is fascinating. And these ships are protagonists in this, in this story. Uh, the various ships, the Terra Nova, the Discovery, and earlier in the Arctic exploration, the Griper and others, the Terror, the Erebus, all of these ships have their own uh, interesting history. Sometimes ex uh, ex explorers use the same ship. They pass the ship on. Sometimes it was refitted. Arguably the most famous Arctic exploration or Antarctic exploration ship is the Fram that was built by Friedrich Nansen, the great Norwegian explorer. I'll have more to say about that later. Here's the detail of this, these gigantic ice flows in the Friedrich painting. Now, I will just briefly try to go through some Arctic, uh, since this painting did refer to Arctic exploration. Nobody knew about Antarctica until 1820, actually, and nobody stepped foot on the continent until 1821. So I'm going to try to not get too bogged down at sea here uh, with the Arctic, the history of Arctic exploration. But this is a portrait on the left of Sir John Ross, and on the right is a a print that shows the crew of the Victory being saved. The Victory is the name of the ship. The crew of the Victory being saved by the Isabella, which is the other ship. John Ross was a British naval officer. Most of the early polar explorers came from the British Navy or the Australian Navy. In 1818, he received a commission to attempt to um, go to the north to traverse the Northwest Passage. The first great challenge for Arctic explorers wasn't to go to the North Pole. It was to try to find a way through the Northwest Passage from the Atlantic to the Pacific so people no longer had to go around Africa, the Cape of Horn of Africa. So this was all the emphasis for various political, economic, trade reasons was oriented towards the, the solving the mystery of the Northwest Passage. Could a ship go through from the Atlantic to the Pacific? I mean, Ross attempted that. He, with, uh, he didn't make it. He had another journey. And he didn't make that again. He had a third journey, this time with his nephew, James, and they failed again. But in each of these uh, expeditions, parts of the passage were charted and mapped. And so they, they, to say they were failures isn't really true because they gave us a lot of important information. The National Gallery is not a, a great repository of Arctic paintings, but... <laughs> We do have this one, which is a recent acquisition, and I was very happy that we acquired this, although at the moment it's off view. This is a painting by John Ward of Hull. It's called The Northern Whale Fishery, The Swan and the Isabella. The Swan is the one ship and the Isabella is the other. Notice the name, the Isabella. This is the same ship we were just talking about that Ross had taken. So the Isabella was a famous ship, and that's the, in the painting, it's the ship on the right. The Isabella was famous as the ship that was sent to rescue John Ross in 1833 when his ship, the Victory, had become trapped in the ice attempting to navigate the Northwest Passage. So this is a, an important painting. It's an Arctic painting. Uh, the city of Hull was an important British port for whaling up until the middle of the 19th century. You see these longboats in this painting that are tugging, pulling 
hauling a whale in and one a whale is in one part sort of going under. The, the ships are rendered in meticulous detail in terms of their rigging and how they were put together. It's filled as well with all kinds of activities of the sailors uh, pursuing whales. And then it has a number of wildlife elements in it. There's a, there are three seals, there's a pair of polar bears, some walruses, some seagulls are skimming the water. So it sort of is a full picture of some of the life of the Arctic as well. Now, the Rosses, both John Ross and his, uh, uh, his uncle are important, but particularly important is Admiral William Perry. So here's a portrait of Sir William Perry on the left from 1820. Most of the artists who have painted these portraits are probably not known to you. I, I will tell you their names, but they're, they're very well known in British uh, sort of uh, marine painting. Samuel Drummond is the artist on the left, and Stephen Pierce is the artist on the right. That shows Perry later in life. Uh, the painting on the left is from 1820 and on the right from 1850. Perry led several British expeditions, again, to try to traverse the Northwest Passage. He was not successful, but his 1819 expedition uh, was the first expedition to cross the 110th uh, meridian in the high northern latitudes. So what you very often got with these missions, with these expeditions, was if I can't make it somewhere, I'm going to go as far south or as far north as anybody's ever been. And so we constantly talk about going the furthest north or the furthest um, uh, south. He made several other att attempts to get to the to the get to the um, through the passage. Uh, he was unsuccessful. Uh, he did then make an attempt to get to the North Pole uh, by departing from Norway on a, on a mission, on an expedition that failed. But that's when he he set a record for the furthest north on that mission or expedition in which he was trying to go to the North Pole. So we looked at Sir John Ross, and this is Sir James Ross. And this is a portrait of Sir James Ross on the left from 1834 by John Wildman. So he's the nephew of Sir John Ross that I just talked about. He also was a Royal Navy explorer, went to the Arctic uh, with his uncle, Sir John Ross, and also with William Perry. He was one of the first to, to mount an exhibition, uh, not an exhibition, an expedition to try to get south to the Antarctic. And that was not successful, but he's one of the first to actually try that. And that's what the painting on the right relates to. This is a painting by James Carmichael. It shows the HMS Erebus and Terror, two different ships, in the Antarctic. So that's actually a painting on the right relating to the Antarctic, not the, the Arctic. Ross, between 1839 and 1843, he commanded the Erebus, which becomes a very famous ship. Uh, on this Antarctic expedition, he charts the coastline of Antarctica. Um, he discovers the Ross Sea. This, when you go to these places today, almost every strait or sea or peninsula is named after one of these explorers. Uh, and then he was sent in 1848. He's one of three expeditions that was sent to try to find the lost expedition of Sir John Franklin, which is probably the expedition, the expedition that everybody knows if they know anything about the Arctic because of its tragic demise. So here is a portrait of Sir John Franklin on the left 
by Thomas Phillips from 1828. And Stephen Pierce, again, is the artist on the right, showing the Arctic Council planning a search for Sir John Franklin from 1851. This is the most tragic expedition to attempt to navigate the Northwest Passage. Uh, it was sent out on May 1845. There were two ships, the Erebus, which we just talked about, was now refitted, and the HMS Terror. So the two ships were the Erebus and the Terror, and they set out to try to find this passage. Two years elapsed, and there was no word from Franklin, uh, and people began to be concerned, most especially his wife. Um, Jane Lady Franklin took it upon herself to orchestrate the most intense public pressure on Parliament and going to the press, etc., to uh, try to send out expeditions to find her husband and to see what uh, had happened uh, to him. And this begins a series of expeditions to the north through the passage or attempting to go through the passage with only one goal in mind, to try to find Franklin and, uh, and the rest of the uh, sailors that were with him. Now, talking about the history of photography in relationship to polar um, expeditions. This is uh, a daguerreotype on the left of uh, Franklin. And on the right, we have uh, 14 daguerreotypes of his senior officers. So the history of photography in both Arctic and Antarctic exploration is very important. So Franklin seems to have had a very keen interest in science and in the latest sort of technology. These pictures were taken probably on the dock just before they all departed in 1845. Now remember, the daguerreotype had just been invented in 1839. And so this is, this is really cutting edge technology. And we know that Franklin brought aboard with him what was called a daguerrean apparatus. So clearly he was hoping to take other photographs. And so he had this, he had this kind of camera uh, or apparatus uh, aboard the Erebus on his journey. These photos, as I said, were probably taken at, at dockside. And um, the apparatus was stowed or, uh, on, the, on the Erebus. There are two sets of these images today that have survived. Uh, one set belongs to the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. This institute is very important today for its archives and its library and its holdings. And the other set is today at the National Maritime Museum in, in Greenwich. Now, I could literally take you on all these voyages and get we'd be getting trapped and then freed and then going on and, and getting stopped. But I, I haven't done that with the, all the voyages I've just mentioned, many of which had these horrific adventures where they were trapped in the ice and et cetera had to abandon the ship, had to then get the men onto the various ice flows and try to find their way to safety. But it is important to mention the Franklin uh, experience, especially in reference to the man who will finally traverse by sea, totally by sea, the Northwest Passage, which is the, the Norwegian explorer, Raoul Amundsen. This chart, or this graph on the, on the, on the um, screen now, compares the Franklin and the Amundsen expeditions. Uh, both were in search of traversing the Northwest Passage totally by sea. 
not by taking a ship so far, then getting on land, and then picking up another ship, but going the entire route uh, by sea. So Franklin departs in September of 1846, and everything is going fine when these uh, individuals leave, and they go up, and where things go badly is here. This is King William Island. As they come up, they're basically followed the same route. But when they got to King William Island, in King William Island uh, Franklin made a major uh, mistake. He sailed down the western side of the island, as you can see uh, where that uh, number five is there, four or five in blue. Uh, and that is where there, were, there was tremendous sea ice and ice pack floating. And uh, this trapped his ship uh, in those ice packs. And he got trapped in the ice in September of 1846. And he finally had to abandon the ship in 1848. By this time, 23 of his men had already perished. They tried to make it south to what was called Victory Point at the end of this island to then try to get to land on foot. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a second. Amundsen did something different. He was basically following the same route until he got to King William Island. And instead of, as we might say, instead of making a right, he made a left. Uh, and he went down the other side of King uh, William Island, which was free of ice. Uh, he knew about, by this time, that it was the western side of the island that always had the great ice pack. And so he found open water, and he found a, a protected bay, and he dropped uh, his anchor in, in this harbor, which, and then he set up a, a basically a, a camp, but it was more than a camp. He built huts, etc. It was called Goa Haven in, in Norwegian, G-J-O-A, -G Goa Haven. And he stayed there for a long period of time. And this is important for what will happen later when Amundsen races to the North Pole. Uh, because what he does at Goa Haven is to encounter the indigenous Inuit people, the, the Eskimo. And he is fascinated and wants to learn everything he can from them about life on the ice, in the snow, in the winters, what happens, how should we dress, how do you stay warm, how do you, what kind of things do you wear, etc. In other words, he cultivates this incredibly close relationship with the Inuit people, and they take him in. And he learns all of these various survival uh, skills, as well as the various kinds of clothing, reindeer skin or wolf skin, because it dries easily. It doesn't, all of these different things, which will be pivotal for him when he makes his race to the pole later. And it will be the kind of information that Robert Falcon Scott will be lacking. Um, and we'll come back to that um, uh, later. In any case, he finally sets out after this long stay, he sets out and he's able to negotiate the, the passage. And he gets over halfway. Uh, and at that point, he knows he's, he's, he's got it beat because he sees another ship coming from the other direction. Uh, and that's a whaling ship that's coming from San Francisco. And once he sees that ship, he knows, I've done it. And uh, he writes in his diary, the Northwest Passage was done. My boyhood dream, at that moment it was accomplished. A strange feeling welled up in my throat. I was somewhat overstrained and worn. It was weakness in me, but I felt tears in my eyes. Vessel in sight, vessel in sight. So once he saw that boat, that ship, he knew 
that he could finish the journey. Here's a closer view of King William Island and going down one side or the other side. You can see in red here, Goa Haven here, this is where Amundsen uh, set up his camp. And on the right, if you follow that red line down here, you're getting the track of the Erebus and the, and the Terror, which were Franklin ships. They got as far as that, you see that the end of that red line, and they're trapped in the ice. And they can go no further. So then they try to make it across the ice to, they abandon the ship, and they try to make it across to Victory Point. And then as far as we know, on foot, they start traversing south. There are two sites today that where we found the wrecks of the ships. So they start traversing south, uh, but they all perish. And, and how and exactly where and when they perish still is a big debate and a big discussion. On the top here, this, this is a, a drawing after a sketch by a, a very well-known polar artist, Alicia Kane. It's called The Three Graves of Franklin's Crewmen on Beachy Island. A number of them made it to the western beach, this beachy island on the, the, on the western side of King William Island. But three sailors perished there. And in fact, there are, today, that's the, that's the view today on the bottom. If you go to Beachy Island, that's a photograph from today on the bottom. There are not three gravestones, but there are four. And the fourth one belongs to a man named Thomas Morgan, who was on one of these later expeditions sent to find Franklin. And he himself perished uh, at that camp. So the exact, exactly how and when and where uh, Franklin and his men succumbed still is, is talked about and analyzed. After the ex expedition, um, and in fact, it was many years after the expedition, there was an Inuit elder who remembered, he was very old, but he remembered having seen Franklin's men. And what he said about it was, quote, they had once been many, now they were only few. They pointed to the south, and it was understood that they wanted to go home over land. They were not met with again, and no one knows where they went to. This is fascinating. He, the Inuit actually saw or met at least some of Franklin's men. They seemed to be totally lost, and they seemed to certainly be suffering greatly. They, they were getting turned around, and the Inuit said, <laughs> South is that way. Uh, and they kept traversing only to ultimately, of course, die on the, on the route. I want to mention here, parenthetically, the importance of the indigenous people here, the Inuit. Uh, they're pivotal, again, in helping, aiding, rescuing, guiding uh, so many of these various uh, uh, expeditions. The Inuit have suffered terribly into the 20th century. They have one of the highest suicide rates of uh, any people anywhere. There have been a couple of recent books on this subject, if you're, in, if you're interested. There was one book called Too Many People, Contact Disorder Change in an Inuit Society, 1822 to 2015. That's by Wilhelm Ressing, R-A-S-I-N-G. And another book that uh, just came out called The Return of the Sun, Suicide and Reclamation Among Inuit of Arctic Canada, what seems to have caused or at least be a prime reason for this high suicide rate among the uh, Inuit 
it seems to be able to be traced back to when these very traditionally nomadic people had to move off of the land into towns and into a more so-called civilized um, world. And prior to that, suicide was rare in Inuit culture. Today, it's almost endemic. Now, of course, in a talk like this today, in 2019, I would be remiss if I didn't try to address, at least in passing, some of the um, factors in the Arctic and in the Antarctic that relate now to uh, global warming, climate change, et cetera. So what I'm showing you on, on the screen now are two NASA satellites that have photographed the uh, uh, northern realms uh, where the Northwest Passage is. Today, because of the thaw and the loss of ice, you can traverse the Northwest Passage with no problem totally by sea. You will never encounter ice in the summer. That yellow line here is as if we followed Amundsen today. That's his route. And along this route, it's all open water. And this is the ice pack, well north uh, of that. So today, the Arctic is warming faster than any other place on the planet. Um, its landscape is greener than it's ever been before. Um, uh, but there are fewer uh, caribou, uh, reindeer. There are more mosquitoes now. <laughs> uh, the summers are warmer. Uh, the most visible and the most disturbing change has come at, at the sea, where now the summer ice has been disappearing at really an astonishing rate. By the way, this photograph is just this square enlarged. So that's what you're looking at. Here's King William Island again. Uh, so NASA scientists estimate that on an average, the Arctic loses nearly 21,000 square miles of ice every year, and that the Arctic Ocean will be free of ice, in, uh, totally free of ice in the summers before 2015. The largest loss of ice in, Antarct in the Arctic was in the year uh, 2007, and it totally shocked all of the... Um, scientists, uh, they, even those who had had the most aggressive model uh, for predicting this were actually uh, shocked. So um, the um, effects now of certainly global warming are, are very strongly affecting both the Arctic and the Antarctic. I'll come back to discuss some of that later when we get to the Antarctic. Now, I mentioned with the Friedrich painting this idea of the Arctic sublime and how the Arctic had begun to capture the imagination of painters, um, illustrators, especially in the Romantic era. But this continued well into the Victorian era in England. And one of the prime motivations or inspirations, if we can call it that, for representations of the Arctic sublime was the Franklin expedition the tragedy of the Franklin Expedition. Uh, news of the demise of the Franklin Expedition lingered <laughs> for years uh, into the late 19th century, and artists were still attempting to sort of come to grips with that. This is a painting by Sir Edwin Landseer. It's titled, Man Proposes, God Disposes, uh, from 1864. It's at the Royal Holloway College at the University of London. This is considered, again, one of the great images of 
the Arctic sublime by a guy who basically never left England. He certainly never traveled to the north. And most of his best-known paintings were of dogs and, and horses. But late in his career, he took on this subject. And clearly, it was still the lingering effects of the, um, the tragedy of the um, Franklin expedition. Uh, people thought, in fact, that when people who knew Landseer, when he painted this painting, they thought he was having a nervous breakdown, uh, that it was a, some kind of a personal painting, that he was sort of losing his grip on things. But what you began to see are these paintings that translated Arctic tragedy into this kind of Darwinian survival and the maritime tragedies meant to be seen in a way that elevated us, if not even frightened us, in, this, in images such as this, especially in, when they included things as we have here, right in the center of the painting, that's that crossing diagonal, that diagonal from lower left to upper right, the mast of a ship. As soon as you saw something like that, of course, there was the reference to the fact that this had been a ship that had been wrecked and the men, the sailors had been lost at sea and probably were now food for the uh, polar bears because you see those bones over here, a rib cage, uh, and other things. So this painting is a very important example of this idea of the Arctic sublime. Here's some details. The flag, that's the pinkish flag in the painting, is the flag that you see on the upper right, which is the, it's an ensign, what's called the ensign flag, uh, British maritime law and, and custom. And ensign is the identifying flag that's, that's flown to designate a British ship. So the red ensign is used on civilian ships. When this painting was exhibited, there was a tremendous response, both positive and negative. The, the London Times spoke of, quote, bones, no need to ask whose. In other words, this is Franklin. This is the tragedy of the Franklin expedition. In the Illustrated London News, there was a slightly more impressionistic review where it said, quote, under the lurid sky of Arctic twilight, among the vast fantastic blocks of ice, green or of livid pallor, save where faintly flushed with the long level rosy ray of the far off dawn, we see over a hollow a solitary spar, and on the brink of this strange and awful grave, for those are human ribs protruding, blanched and bare from summer heat or birds of prey. This painting shocked a lot of Victorians. They, they thought it was just too much. Uh, the Victorian sensibility could be offended by lots of things. Um, so people were you know, swooning in front of the painting. Um, as I said, some people thought Lancer was going through a kind of a nervous breakdown. Um, ironically, this is housed at the Royal uh, College, um, the Royal Holloway College at the University of London. And it's at that college, uh, this painting has a very interesting history. The scientist who, in 1996, she's from Canada, from the University of Trent, who was able to demonstrate after there were some bones found on one of these expeditions to locate where Franklin might have gone. She was the forensic pathologist who proved that there had been cannibalism on this, on this expedition, the Franklin expedition, because she could look by the bones and see how they had been variously gnawed, et cetera. Um, uh, her name is Anne uh, Kingleyside, from Trent University. But she had a fellowship at the Royal Holloway College, 
and she would pass this painting uh, all the time, never realizing that ultimately it was going to conflate uh, with her own research. So here is the painting. And uh, there are other great legends and stories about this painting. And here you see students at the college taking their exams on the left. And you'll notice the painting is covered um, by the flag. This is a photograph from 18, uh, 1984. Whenever, since the first exams at this college, uh, going all the way back to the 20s, uh, this painting has been associated with failure because of Franklin, etc. And if the belief was that as a student, if you sat directly in front of it on an exam, you would fail. Um, so this supposedly, this myth kind of grew up, and the college curator of this collection uh, talks about it. But the belief was that she's sort of echoing what a student s said once. I'm going to fail my exam, just like they failed to find a Northwest Passage, and then I'll get eaten by a polar bear. <clears throat> So this, by the 70s, this kind of legend had reached really a kind of a fever pitch among the students. And so during one exam, when the registrar was just trying to give the exam, this one student absolutely would not sit near this painting. So she, she wanted to give the exam, so she had to do something. So she just quickly ran out and found whatever it would cover this thing. And that was the Union Jack. <clears throat> and that has remained the, the case ever since. If you talk to different students, again, one student, a recent graduate, recounts that uh, a student during an exam had stared directly into one of the polar bear's eyes. <laughs> Trance like the student had then gone mad and killed herself, although not before etching the words, quote, the polar bears made me do it on her exam paper. Um, there's no evidence to support any of that, uh, but that's how ripe the legend is today even. Um, so they still have to cover the painting during exams. Nobody will sit there. Um, now, I mentioned uh, this, great, this great painting by Landseer because it's very timely. Because the National Gallery, we have just acquired our first painting by uh, Edwin Landseer. And here it is. This is now exhibited. We have just installed this in the American galleries, or the American English galleries. This is by Landseer. It's one of his earlier paintings, Alpine Mastiffs Reanimating a Distressed Traveler. Uh, this guy's dying in the snow, and the, these dogs are coming to give him aid. It dates to 1820. Landseer was a, was a renowned 19th century British painter, certainly, specifically of animals, and not so much polar bears, but horses and dogs and stags were his kind of thing. Uh, so we're very fortunate. This is a big painting. This is a great Lancer. It's an important Lancer. It's an early. So it was good that we waited. This has always been in a private collection. can be traced right back to when Lancer uh, uh, gave it to uh, the one private collector, and then it, we can trace it um, uh, over time. So the collector acquired it directly from Lancer, and it's remained privately owned all the way up until its acquisition by the National uh, gallery. Now, Lancer is, Lancer is a hoot. Uh, I, I mean, I like Lancer. The, 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 the polar bear picture is really great. The best Lancers are uh, over the top. Uh, and the more over the top they are, the better they are. Um, wh where he gets into trouble is when he begins. And this is a distinctly British thing. And in fact, this will affect Robert Falcon Scott when he's going to the South Pole and he has to deal with the idea of killing his dogs in order to eat them. 
uh, etc. on the way. And this British love of the dog and of the horse, all of this, because Lancer at his, when he's beyond over the top, wherever that is, uh, he then becomes kind of overly sentimental, which is where you see paintings of dogs that take on human qualities. Um, a dog that would be called impudence, and it looks kind of feisty, uh, uh, et cetera. That, for me, what I always like to say, it's a short step from that to a bunch of dogs playing poker around the table, uh, <laughs> uh, which then is like, OK, I'm out of here. Uh, but. These paintings were, were very important by Lancer. When he's at his best, like the, like the man proposes, God disposes, and the painting that we now have acquired. So with the Franklin, the demise of the Franklin exhibition, the, 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 the interest in portraying events or scenes or, or imagining the expedition really then is ubiquitous. It covers and cuts across all national boundaries. These are two works by a Belgian painter, Francois Etienne Moussin. On the left is the HMS Erebus trapped in the ice from 1846. Of course, that re relates to the Franklin. And on the right, same artist, HMS Resolute in search of Sir John Franklin. If you're not painting the actual expedition, you're painting the ships that are going to try to find the expedition, as you see here. Now. As I said, the earliest history, aside from Franklin and the inspiration that his tragic demise led to, the earliest history of the Arctic and being explored or mapped is being done by whalers and sealers. And of course, actually, they're being very secretive. <laughs> because the last thing, if they find a place where there are a lot of seals, they're not going to tell anybody else. So the idea of how it slowly begins to be understood is uh, interesting over time. One of the great American painters of the Arctic is William Bradford. And these are two Bradford paintings. On the left is Sealers Crushed by Icebergs from 1866. And on the right is Icebound Ship from 1880. Bradford was an American painter. He was also a photographer. Um, he was an explorer. He came from Fairhaven, Massachusetts. Uh, and he becomes one of our country's preeminent Arctic uh, painters, seascapes, and, and ships as well. Uh, he's among the very first painters to portray the frozen north. He's very closely associated, ultimately, with the artists that we're probably more familiar with, uh, Frederick Church and, and Bierstadt. Now, we mentioned photography with the daguerreotype on the Franklin expedition. Bradford used on a number of expeditions that Bradford was on, there were photographers. And the two most important, uh, and we have some of their work in our collection, are John Dunmore, an American photographer, and uh, George Critcherson. And these are two photographs by Dunmore and Critcherson. On the, they produce a book called Arctic Regions that's published in 1873. So almost everything I'm showing you here comes was, was produced for that book. And they have these long, sometimes very long titles. Uh, so on the left is Arctic regions. But then it goes on to be described as, quote, iceberg with an arch in it, which, when connected with the glacier, will give the reader to understand how the water flows from the glacier through these arches, causing the rapid current. That's the title. And uh, another photograph on the, on the right. They accompanied Bradford very often on expeditions to the Arctic. 
And in fact, Bradford very often used their photographs once he got back into his studio to base some of his um, uh, paintings upon. Of course, photography in the Arctic at this point, you're carrying the most unwieldy, large, cumbersome equipment. Uh, you're using 14 by 8 inch plates. I, I mean, you're in the worst conditions possible to try to take any kind of photograph. Here's Bradford's scene in the Arctic from 1880 on the left. This is in the de Young Museum in San Francisco. Uh, on the right is Arctic Sunset from 74. It's in the RISD Museum in Providence. These effects of light are very palpable in Bradford. But again, alongside Bradford are the photographers. So here's two other photographs by Dunmore and Richardson. On the left, Arctic regions number 92. And then here's the title again. The Devil's Thumb Partially Enveloped in a Fog with the first of the drift ice from the pack, which was being forced towards the land, from which we escaped through a narrow lead. Had we been hemmed in, we should have had to winter there. That's the title. <laughs> um, and then on the right, same thing, same kind of long title. It's called Hunting by Steam in Melville Bay, the party after a day's sport killing six polar bears within the 24 hours. Uh, Melville Bay is on the northwestern coast of, uh, of Greenland. And these photographs that had people doing things, like hunters especially, they, they were very popular with the sort of Victorian sensibility. Here's Bradford's An Arctic Summer boring through the pack in Melville Bay. So here you see the same place we just see, saw the photograph is now painted. Uh, this is a painting by 1871, again, often based on the photographs of uh, Dunmore and Richardson. I'm going to show you some details here. Notice on the far left is the broken mast again of a ship. So it adds this layer of poignancy and the idea that man has been here and maybe he shouldn't be here. Here are some details of the iceberg and the ship. Here's a detail of the sort of foreground to the right. And we had this reference in the photograph about hunting polar bear. This one gets away. There he is in the lower front of the painting. So once again, remember, no polar bears in the Antarctic. They're just in the Arctic. Here is. Uh, Frederick Edwin Church now. Now, most of us are familiar with Church and with his travels to all these exotic places. But he, too, is one of the first Americans to travel north. This is Icebergs and Wreck in Sunset from 1860. In 1859, Church had chartered a month-long expedition to go to the North Atlantic. Uh, and he went up to the coast of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. He spent several weeks up there. He was on a 65-ton schooner. And then he would get in a rowboat and row out to various places and do sketches, uh, oil sketches, or sometimes you couldn't do oil sketches because it was too cold. And then he would take his sketches and come back and do finished paintings. So his goal was to experience, to capture the essence of this experience among the icebergs in this foreign, some often forbidding land and to sort of convey at times its otherworldly sort of sense. But very often, he's showing you, again, ships trapped in the ice, um, the struggle of man against the environment. He goes to the Arctic in 1859. In 1859, Darwin publishes 
the origin of the species. And so there's this discussion about man, nature, survival, struggle, that is often part of the understanding of these works. Arguably, the most famous of the iceberg pictures is this one that's in Dallas. This is icebergs from 1861. And he painted this picture in less than six months. It was first exhibited in New York in 1861. And it was exhibited, interestingly enough, 12 days after the attack on Fort Sumter. And so the original title for this painting was not Icebergs. He originally titled it The North. And that would start to feed into the way this concept of the North versus the South, the fact that England, for example, was supporting initially the Confederacy, that the North was the land of hope and aspiration. All of this got kind of tied into these pictures. I'll talk a little bit more about it. But it is with pictures like this that were large uh, that he would send these on tour. So he would paint a picture in New York. It would be on tour in New York. It would be on exhibit in New York. Then he sent it to Boston. And then, in fact, he sent it to London. And he would have these big elaborate frames made. I've talked about this in my own lectures here with our painting of Niagara, because that's another picture that that church sent on tour. And you would have this whole... kind of theatrical presentation. People paid 25 cents to get in. There would be seats. The painting would be behind a curtain on this large kind of uh, frame. There would be some kind of a pamphlet that church would have written to tell you about the scene you're about to see, Niagara or wherever, the Andes, or in this case, the North. And you would read that. And you were encouraged to bring your opera glasses and binoculars so that you could look more closely at these, uh, at these pictures. This is the kind of thing I'm talking about. So when I talked about our painting of Niagara, I mentioned that that was a painting exhibited this way. The photograph on the right shows a different painting. It's the Heart of the Andes by Church that was exhibited under this, in this same theatrical way. But on the north, on the left, is the broadside he wrote, the pamphlet he wrote to accompany the iceberg painting, which at this point was still called The North. He only changed the title uh, later. So you would pick up one of these pamphlets. You would read it. You'd get all excited. You'd be looking at this curtain thing. You'd pay your quarter. You'd have your binoculars or your opera glasses. And then he would come in and open up that curtain. And there it was, like cinemascope. This is the great Aurora Borealis picture by uh, Church that's at the Smithsonian American Art Museum at SAM, uh, 1865. This was another reference to a specific explorer, Isaac Hayes, Isaac Israel Hayes. He had traveled to the north in his ship, the the SS uh, United States, and he had gotten frozen, of course. Everybody gets gets frozen in the ice. But what um, Church is showing here is this the northern lights, this aurora sort of borealis. And Hayes, when he returned to New York, talked about, in reference to the Civil War, he gave these rousing speeches, and he he vowed that, quote, God willing, I trust yet to carry the flag of the great republic with not a single star erased from its glorious union to the extreme northern limits of the earth. So the attention or the connection between the north the Arctic and America and the north northern states during the Civil War. So these aurora borealises were often seen as transcendental sort of ideas of the greatness of the north, this kind of 
touched by God kind of idea. Thomas Moran, this is specters from the north or, or icebergs in the mid-Atlantic from 1890. This is in Tulsa at the Gilcrease Museum. So this tradition, this interest just continues. Here is Moran again, moonlight, icebergs in the mid-Atlantic from 1910. I mean, these painters are great sea painters. They're great painters of the sea, without a doubt. Now, lest you think that this all just sort of falls by the wayside as we get through the 19th century into the 20th century. This is Gerhard Richter, the German artist, uh, who's still very much with us. Um, on the left is a painting called Ice from 1981. It's an oil on canvas. This sold uh, in 2012 at Sotheby's for $6,703,280 US dollars. And on the right is Iceberg from 1982, uh, which sold at Sotheby's for $21,569,258. He made three pictures of icebergs. These are two of them here. And uh, they're all similar. They, they reflect the stillness, the quiet, the icy sort of glassy mirror-like of effect of the, of the Arctic. There was another painting, it was a reworking of the painting on the right called Iceberg. It was purchased by the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and here it is. Now, so this is in a museum today. The other two are in private collections. Richter talks about this. In essence, it's a tribute going all the way back to Friedrich, to Gaspar David Friedrich, the great German painter of the 19th, uh, of the 19th century. Now, there's another expedition, again, going off to look for Franklin, but I just want to mention this for a different reason. This is led by two men. Each captain was, had a different ship. Uh, Sir George Strong Nares on the left. This is a painting by Stephen Pierce from 1877. That's a photograph of Albert Hastings Markham. Uh, they went off in two different ships to try to find, to find Franklin, but then also to explore. Their ships were the Discovery and the Alert, and so each man manned a different ship. They did set a record for the furthest north at 83 degrees, 20 minutes, 26 seconds. And that was, uh, that was a record that wouldn't be broken until Nansen, uh, the Norwegian, would sail further north in 1895. What's interesting about this expedition from the artistic point of view, and this is true of all of these explorers, the journals. The diaries and the journals are pivotal. And often the journals are illustrated. And Every one of these guys kept a journal. And if you, if you are artistic, you also did drawings, et cetera. So this, was, this is the journal on the left of Albert Hastings Markham. And that picture that's on the right page, uh, he, the title is, Ye Commanders and Nellie's Cabin on the HMS Alert. Nellie was his dog, uh, the black retriever that you see sleeping there. And then the other images on the upper right is Westward Ho, uh, latitude 82 uh, degrees 40 minutes north. And then on the lower right, a native of Greenland harpooning ye lively seal. Uh, these are watercolors. Markham's journal is a very important uh, journal, and it's representative of the kinds of journals that all of these explorers uh, kept. His journal was published in an abridged form after he got back to England, but in the around 20, in 2015, 
the complete document was found. It wasn't just the, the complete original document with all the illustrations and photographs, which had never been seen, came up for auction in London, and it sold for $131,895. Um, so we do have the complete Markham Journal now. Another person on that expedition was Edward Lawton Moss. He was, in fact, the ship's surgeon. And what you very often find on these missions is that everybody had more than one. You might be the surgeon, but you could draw. Or you, you might be the guy who was the paymaster, but you could take a photograph. <laughs> so everybody did many different things. And the book that Moss produced, he was the ship's surgeon on the HMS Alert, is this one here that came to be published as The Shores of the Polar Sea which was a narrative of that expedition. This had a number of important images in it. Here's the map on the left of the track of the expedition up to the north of Baffin Bay here on the left. And then here's the alert on the right trapped in the ice. Uh, here's the HMS alert in the ice again on the left. And here is hunting musk ox. So these were all uh, parts of the illustrations in the uh, originally in the book as illustrations, but then they were photomechanically reproduced for further dissemination. But it wasn't just, there weren't just drawn or painted images, there were photographs. And this is interesting because they were by a man named George White, who was actually the assistant engineer of the alert, and Thomas Mitchell who was the paymaster of the discovery. These were not professional photographers. They were amateurs. And yet they had brought with them some photographic equipment. They had been given a crash course before they departed on how to take a picture. And they went off and did their thing. So here, we're not sure who took the photograph on the left, if it's White or Mitchell. But it's the alert and the discovery under Cape Prescott from 1875. The uh, photograph on the right is Thomas Mitchell. It shows George White with Nellie, remember the dog? Uh, Nellie, Commander Markham's black retriever at Winter Headquarters in Ellesmere Island. That's the Canadian Arctic from May 1876. Captain Nares acknowledged the importance of these two guys, and he said uh, when he had to write his official report, he said, quote, Mr. Mitchell and Mr. George White, engineer, have made a most valuable collection of photographs of subjects connected with Arctic life and scenes. They went on a sledging party. Uh, so you would be docked, but then you would go on various expeditions on the mainland. Here are some of the photographs. Um, on the left, this is White or Mitchell, we're not sure. Lady Franklin Sound sledging party outside the Discovery. Here's the alert on the right, trapped in the ice again. Now, these are glass slides. This is, the, on the left, the uh, expedition shows the explorers approaching the waters of Greenland. And on the right, dogs, uh, dog sleds on the ice uh, here. In 2016, there was uh, a lady who was, <laughs> she was sort of having a yard sale. She was closing out her house and she was selling things. Um, and this was in Cornwall. And um, <clears throat> there was this little box uh, that uh, somebody purchased, and not even looking into it, they just purchased it. And when they opened up this box, there were 42 rare three-inch square glass slides of this expedition. Um, 
So the glass slides are much clearer than the actual other photographs. So I'm showing you here now these glass slides that were found in this box in Cornwell. It was then auctioned. The slide, the guy who purchased it decided to put them up. He bought it for like $2 uh, and then decided they, they were auctioned. And the auction house curators about these images said, quote, <clears throat> these fascinating early Arctic images were probably produced for lecture purposes. They show us all manner of expedition details such as clothing, equipment, the parties involved, as well as some remarkable images of the indigenous Greenlanders. They carry an estimate, now here she gets technical, <laughs> they carry an estimate of 500 to 1,000 pounds, so they are certainly not the most widely valuable of items, but for teaching us about a forgotten moment in our history, they are rather priceless. So uh, I'm gonna show you some of these slides here. Uh, here's the crew using pickaxes to try to free their ship when it's become trapped in the ice on the left, and then constructing an ice house to live in once they abandon their ship. And you see that on the right. Uh, what's fascinating about these images is how they predict and presage what's going to happen to Scott and Shackleton and others when they get trapped in the ice in the Antarctic and have to try to free their ships. It's an amazing kind of almost prescient kind of look ahead. Here's the crew hunting a large walrus for food and fuel on the left. This slide is cracked on the right. The crew, uh, again, showing the, the ship in the, in the ice. Here's part of the crew on the left and then also on the right. They did sledge. They had sledge journeys, and they did come within 400 miles of the North Pole. Uh, so they did uh, attempt to reach the pole, but they, did, they didn't make it. I mentioned the importance of the Inuit. So here on the left is the crew and their Inuit guides who uh, were very helpful to the uh, crew members in terms of helping them learn how to survive. And on the right, these are the local Inuit population that acted as guides for the British What's fascinating is that in Markham's journal, he did a drawing, and it's the uh, drawing on the right, uh, a Floberg cracked by intense cold. So that's a watercolor. It was a drawing in a watercolor. On the left is the photograph of the same place from the other side. Uh, so it's the exact same thing, but photographed from the other side. So that's in one of these uh, uh, photographs by Mitchell and White. What's fascinating here is that you have photography on the left, drawing and painting on the right, and that's gonna continue right through to Shackleton and Scott and everybody else. They will take photographers as well as more traditional artists. Okay, did anybody get to the North Pole? <laughs> well, this is a photograph of Frederick Cook, 1908. And then Frederick Cook's 1909 expedition on the right, his Arctic expedition. This is a photograph from the Library of Congress. So what about the quest for the North Pole? Cook, the American explorer, he was an explorer, a physician, an ethnographer. He claimed to have reached the North Pole on April 21st, 1908. And this was nearly a year before the other American who had claimed to reach the pole, that was Robert Perry, said that he had reached it on April 6th, 1909. The idea at this time was that the pole had been conquered. Of course, today we know both of these guys were full of it. Uh, neither guy got to the North Pole. 
And the reason, it, almost immediately, quite frankly, in the various geographical societies, the Royal Geographical Society, et cetera, they had to, they had to show, they, you had to show them your notes, your calculations, your computations, and they had to be airtight that you got to the pole. This is like your, remember our grade school teacher who would say, show me your work? Uh, you couldn't just have the answer. I got to the pole. Uh, you had to demonstrate. And these calculations had to be meticulous. And in the case of Cook and Perry, neither one got to the pole. Nobody accepts their documentation and their claim today. So the first person to actually get to the pole is Amundsen. <laughs> Amundsen gets to the pole, but he doesn't get to the North Pole trekking. He gets to the North Pole in an air, uh, in an airship called the Norge. He overflies the area with 16 other men in 1926, um, so after Scott and Perry. Do you know when somebody finally made a, a sledge journey, in other words, surface journey, to the North Pole? It was not until 1968. Uh, in 1968, uh, the pole is finally conquered by Ralph Plaisted, Walt Peterson, Jerry Pitzel, and Jean-Luc Bomadier who traveled on snowmobiles. Uh, they weren't man-hauling <laughs> on snowmobiles. They arrived at the pole on April 19, 1968. The United States Air Force independently confirmed all of their computations and calculations, and they got to the pole. So that was in 1968. What's interesting is 1968, we're going to the pole, and we're going to the moon. Uh, so there's another. This is a Robert Perry uh, on the left, self-portrait, Cape Sheridan, Canada, 1909. And then here's Perry on the right, <laughs> the Perry sledge party at the North Pole. Of course they're not at the North Pole. Uh, on April 7th, 1909. And by the way, what people like to say about going to the pole is uh, there's no there there. In other words, when you get there, it's not like a barber pole that's <laughs> like you're seeing Santa Claus or something. It's not, the only way you know is by calculation, by taking measurements and calculating. You don't know. It all looks the same. Uh, so here's Perry thinking he's at the pole, but he's not. And we have a group of, he's posing here. There's one of his Inuit guides on the far left who's holding a Navy League flag, another Inuit guide who's holding the, uh, the Delta Kappa Epsilon Fraternity flag. I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, Matthew Henson is holding the polar flag. Another Inuit guide is holding the DAR peace flag. And then another Inuit is holding the Red Cross flag. Now, what's interesting is about the, uh, the Delta Epsilon, the Delta Kappa Epsilon flag. Perry was a member of that fraternity in college. It's the, among the oldest fraternities in, in North America. So he brought his fraternity's flag. He had gone to school at, uh, at Bowdoin College in Maine. So he brought that fraternity flag. An Apollo 12, which consisted of astronaut Alan Bean was on that journey to the moon, and Apollo 12, he brought the flag for the same fraternity because he was in the fraternity also. He had gone to the University of Texas at Austin. So both of these explorers <laughs> brought their fraternity flags to their various uh, uh, places. Now here's, I love this guy. I mean, doesn't this guy look like an explorer? Oh boy. Um, we're not going to talk at length about him, but this is Friedolf Nansen. He's the great Norwegian 
explore is a photograph on the left from 1890 and another one from 1889. Nansen is fascinating. I, I mean, I'm sorry I can't really go into a lot of his exploits. He led this courageous, a number of courageous expeditions to the Arctic. At the age of 27, he actually crossed the inland ice of Greenland on skis. This is important because the one thing the Norwegians could do that the British couldn't do was ski. Cross they were excellent cross-country skiers. For Amundsen, this would be pivotal when he tries to make it to the South Pole. He won fame, Nansen did, as going the farthest north to a latitude of 86 degrees, 14 minutes, in the Fram. Now, the Fram, spelled F-R-A-M, is probably the most famous ship used in polar expedition. It's a rock star. Uh, there's an entire museum devoted to the Fram in Oslo. They have the ship. It's in a museum. I mean, this is like the greatest ship ever. Um, and uh, it was commissioned, designed, uh, constructed under Nansen's guidance. Uh, and it was employed for, Arctic, for polar exploration from 1892 to 1912. It was retired in 1912. There is no wooden ship that sailed farther north or farther south than the Fram. Uh, Fram in Norwegian means forward. Um, when Amundsen is going to the, try to get to the pole, he asks Nansen if he can borrow the Fram. Uh, and because they were friends, both Norwegian explorers, uh, Nansen let Amundsen take that ship. Okay. We're finally at Antarctica. <laughs> That was all prelude. <laughs> that was all sort of lead up. Um, so here's a map, obviously, on the left. And um, on the right is a photograph by one of the great polar photographers that accompanied Scott. This is Herbert Ponting. It's Mount Erebus and a Dome Cloud from West Beach. These are the titles. They're very descriptive. Mount Erebus and Dome Cloud from West Beach, 2.30 PM, icicled foreground. March 7th, 1911. This is, Pontine's, the greatest collection of Pontine's work is at the Scott Polar Research Institute in Cambridge. So let's talk a little bit about Antarct Antarctica. Antarctica is the coldest, the driest, the windiest, the cleanest, the highest, the most isolated, the most desolate, the most southern, <laughs> and the fifth largest continent on the earth. It is ice-covered. It is an ice-covered landmass. It is land. It's not just ice. Uh, it's considered a polar desert. It has less precipitation than the Sahara Desert, about two inches per year. It lacks any permanent or indigenous human inhabitants. Virtually, uh, it is virtually uninhabited by any life forms except for six species of penguins, six species of seals, and for the most part, bioorganisms that are floating around in the water that generally are referred to as krill, K-R-I-L-L. -L. This is what the penguins eat when they're in the water. Occasionally, a whale will pass through, <laughs> some seabirds. The coldest recorded temperature in the interior is 128 degrees below zero Fahrenheit in 1983. Uh, ice forms glaciers and shelves and bergs. There are essentially only two seasons in the Antarctica. In Antarctic, there's summer and winter. Summer uh, has long periods of sun, but the sun remains low in the sky. Uh, winter, there's almost complete darkness. Uh, summer essentially is October through February. Uh, 
winter, March through September. Um, the mean annual temperature in the interior, so this is the average, is 70 degrees below zero. Uh, there's no evidence that Antarctica was seen by humans until the 19th century. Uh, so it, this idea was like going to the moon. This is what I mean. The first sightings of the continent were in 1820. The first documented landing, although there's controversy about this, somebody who actually stepped on the continent, was an American sealer named John Davis. And supposedly, he actually touched Antarctica on February 7, 1821, in the west, in western Antarctica. Uh, the interior of Antarctica was not reached until the 20th century. Uh, today, several countries claim sovereignty or zones of influence in certain regions of Antarctica, but nobody recognizes these claims. They're universally not recognized. Australia, because of its history and its proximity uh, to Antarctica, has the largest claim to a zone of influence. But in 1959, there was the Antarctic Treaty. This was pivotal. This was a geophysical year that was very important, and the Antarctic was at the core of this. And this treaty set aside the Antarctica as a, as a scientific preserve, established freedom of scientific investigation and environmental protection, and banned military activity on the continent. So that was very important. But then that was followed in 1998 by the Madrid Protocol. The Madrid Protocol banned all mining in Antarctica, and it designated Antarctica as, quote, a natural reserve devoted to peace and science. Military activity is forbidden um, uh, in Antarctica, but scientists from 28 different countries conduct experiments that cannot be reproduced anywhere else on the planet. They have to be done at Antarctica. The largest research station is the one we have, the United States. It's the McMurdo Station uh, is the largest. It's on the Ross Ice Shelf, which is interesting because that's where both, that Ross Ice Shelf is both where Amundsen and Scott depart for the race to the pole. Um, so that's kind of some of the nitty gritty. Antarctica is, it's blank. <laughs> it's white, it's pure, it's empty, it's silent, it's vast. This is one of Ponting's photographs, a very famous one from 1911 on the Scott expedition, on the Terra Nova expedition. It's called Anton Omelchinok. He was one of the Russians on the crew. Stands at the end of the Barn Glacier on Ross Island. From the earliest human encounters that people have with Antarctica, which is recorded in journals and various visual images, it was always associated in the minds of travelers and the public with what we call the sublime. I've spoken here at the gallery on the romantic sublime in reference to paintings by Friedrich Turner and Church, and it's relevant to Antarctic exploration. The sublime is articulated by Edmund Burke in the 18th century in 1757 in a very famous treatise called The Philosophical Inquiry into the Origins of Our Ideas of the Sublime and Beautiful. And Burke writes a, a lot about what this means, and he sort of defines the sublime as, quote, the strongest emotion which the mind is capable of feeling. I can't go through Burke. I, seem, I can't get away from this guy. Everything I do, I'm always coming back to Burke and the sublime. But in any case, uh, it's when danger presses closely, it, it evokes the strongest emotion that we're capable of feeling. But if, press, if, if, if danger presses too closely, it's no longer sublime. It's just kind of terrible. Um, so it's this fine kind of edge. 
Now, this Antarctic sublime, we talked about the Arctic sublime, is clearly referenced and, and explored and articulated by Scott and Shackleton, Mawson. Uh, and it really is a violation of the Burkean sublime because it's not this distant, there is this distant, oh, wow, that's beautiful, that kind of thing, like you see here uh, in this photograph with the requisite distance. But notice the scale here in this photograph. It's beyond just being dwarfed. It's feeling almost like you're, in, you're totally not even there. What happens in the Antarctic in these explorations by these very famous explorers is that there is an effective nature of the sublime that leads, in, veg, uh, in essence, to trauma. It goes beyond the sublime to trauma. And so what we refer to this as is the traumatic sublime. It's where now you're in a situation, this is not sublime. It's, I'm, I'm suffering trauma uh, from the, the darkness, the cold, the frostbite, the deprivation, the exhaustion, the pain, the danger, all of these issues. And this is what Scott and Shackleton and all of these explorers in the Antarctic will refer to. One of the most famous discussions of this really is in one of the most famous travel books from this gentleman on the right. This is absolutely Cherry Gerard, is his hyphenated last name. And he is on the Scott Terra Nova expedition, the tragic expedition of Scott. And when he comes back, he survives. He, he writes the book on the left. That's a first edition, two volume with the original jackets. The Worst Journey in the World, Antarctica, 1910 to 1913, which is published in 1922. And that's Ponting's portrait on the right of Cherry Gerard who was the assistant biologist and zoologist on the expedition. He writes this book uh, about a five-week sledging journey that he takes with two other members of the crew, uh, Bertie Bowers and Edward Wilson, to Cape Crozier. And the idea, it's a scientific expedition. They want to secure an emperor penguin egg and bring it back. <laughs> They're going for an egg. Um, <laughs> And they are traveling in the continuous darkness of the uh, Antarctic uh, winter. Um, Cherry Garrard is nearsighted. And on this, on this expedition, he can't wear his glasses because they are useless in that cold and freezing. So he talks about having to negotiate, in, in, that, in addition to the darkness, they have to negotiate everything by textures and sounds as they're trying to sort of move through. Uh, they're traveling in extreme cold, almost complete total darkness. Uh, and slowly on this expedition, this boundary between the men and the landscape breaks down. They're no longer able to just look out there and say, oh, wow, this is so beautiful. Look at that. Um, it now turns into trauma. So they're suffering from frostbite. Their sweat and breath freezes over their mouth. They can't speak. It often closes their eyes. Uh, every step you take, you're, you might fall into a crevasse going over what is a, a snow bridge, but you think, it's, you think it's land, but it's just covering a huge crevasse. Um, there's this feeling now of being annihilated by the landscape. It's not a sublime feeling. It's a traumatic feeling. So Cherry Garai writes in this book, he writes, um, quote, the horrors of that return journey are blurred to my memory, and I know they were blurred to my body and time. This journey had beggared our language. No words could express its horror. Then he goes on to say, 
Over all the gray, limitless barrier seemed to cast the spell of cold immensity, vague, ponderous, a breeding place of wind and drift and darkness. God, what a place. Now that last phrase, God, what a place, is very close to what Scott will write in his journal as he's dying with his two comrades. And he, I'll come back to this later. But he uses, the, he uses the same phrase about, this is a horrible, God, this is a horrible place, when he knows that they're not going to be able to get back to uh, base camp. This book, by the way, is considered by many to be the, the best travel book ever written. To call it a travel book is really not, uh, is really not doing it justice. But the number of writings on Antarctica today, contemporary writings, and even into the 19th century, they almost, the titles almost always stress this traumatic sublime. There are titles like Terra Incognita, Alone on the Ice, End of the Earth, Slicing the Silence, Alone, The White Darkness. Those are the, the way people think of it. Now here is Robert Falcon Scott, a photogravure on the left from 1905, uh, and then a portrait from 1905, an oil on canvas. Scott leads two expeditions to the Antarctic. The first is the Discovery Expedition, that's the ship, 1901 to 1904, and then it's followed by the ill-fated Terra Nova Expedition of 1910 to 1913. The Discovery Expedition was the first official British exploration of the Antarctic region since James Ross, going all the way back to Ross's voyage 60 years earlier. It launched the Antarctic careers of many who would become leading figures in this heroic age. It in, that included Scott himself, Shackleton, who was on this journey, Edward Wilson, and Frank Wilde, among the others. The, during this period, the Antarctic continent became now a focus of international effort and a desire to understand it scientifically, geographically, but also in terms of trying to get to various uh, basically to the pole. Uh, there were 17 Antarctic expeditions launched by 10 different countries at this time. The Discovery Exedi Expedition did not make it to the pole, but it established a furthest south record of 82 degrees, 16 minutes. But more importantly, this expedition, which went terribly awry, even though they, they hit this furthest south, was a learning experience for both Scott and Shackleton, who, who was on this expedition. Here is the discovery as it's taking off uh, to sea in New Zealand. That's the officers on the left of the discovery, 1901 to 1904. And then there's the discovery on the right on the Ross ice shelf. On the in the photograph on the left, at the far left is Edward Wilson. He's, he's very important. He's one of the artists for the expedition. Next to him, the next guy from the left is Ernest Shackleton. He's on the expedition. And you go another few people past, and then you get to Robert Falcon Scott. On this expedition, Shackleton, Scott, and Wilson uh, have a sledging expedition once the, they arrive. Uh, and where they arrive is at what's today called um, Hut Point. And that's the hut they build on the right that you can still visit today. So this is the Discovery Hut on the right that was put into place, assembled in 1902 at Hut Point, which is on Ross Island near McMurdo Sound. Uh, that's what it looks like today. These huts were prefabricated. 
In, the case, this, in this case, it was prefabricated in Australia. It cost about 360 pounds at that time. It was transported in pieces on the ship to then be assembled on the spot. This was not the best designed hut. It was a square structure. It had a useless veranda, like you're going to sit out <laughs> You're going to sit out and have a cup of tea when it's 100 degrees below zero. And all of the veranda did was to act as a snow trap. You can see it right there. It's trapping the snow. That wasn't good. The insulation for this hut was provided by a relatively thin layer of felt between two boards. And that did not do the job. In fact, the hut was so unbearably cold and windy that much of the crew refused to use it, and they slept on the ship uh, in their sleeping bags. So here on the left is Shackleton on the left, Scott in the middle, and Edward Wilson on the right. This, this expedition sets off on August 6, 1901. That's the whole expedition. They reach Antarctica in January of 1902. Then in November of 1902, these three guys uh, here set off on a sledging journey. And uh, this would be the southernmost trek anybody had achieved at this point in time. They had dogs with them, sled dogs. But none of these guys knew how to handle dogs. So the dogs were running around, getting their leashes were getting all sort of gnarled together. They had brought food, obviously, for the dogs. But the food ended up being tainted. And they were feeding tainted food to the dogs. A number of the dogs died. They got to a point on December 31st, having reached the uh, latitude of 82 degrees 16 minutes, that they decided to turn back. And they had, so they had traveled 300 miles farther south than anyone before them. And they were, when they turned back, they were about 480 miles from the South Pole. One of the problems here was Shackleton's health. On this particular journey, Shackleton was suffering tremendously. He was coughing blood. He was suffering fainting spells. He was unable to help pull the sledge. Scott and Wilson were also suffering. They, they were struggling. But... Shackleton was so bad that at a certain point they had to put him in the sledge and, and pull him. And as cruel as this sounds, Scott never forgave Shackleton for getting sick. Uh, he really sort of held this against Shackleton uh, as these guys struggled to get home. They got, it was a close call, but 93 days after setting off, and they had covered 960 miles, they got back to the discovery and to the hut. Uh, that the following month, Shackleton, who had, been suffer who had suffered particularly badly from the journey, he had scurvy, he was exhausted. Um, Scott sent him home. He ordered him home uh, on the next ship. And this starts a relationship of a certain amount of friction uh, that'll play off later between both Shackleton and Scott. When uh, Shackleton decides to mount his own expedition, the famous uh, Nimrod expedition. He asks Wilson, who is the third man here, to come on that expedition with him, because Wilson is a, a good, good man. But Wilson declined because he was too loyal to Scott. So you already saw these sort of relationships sort of establishing themselves. Now, this is the most famous journey. That was the Discovery Expedition, but this is the South Polar Expedition of Scott on the Terra Nova. So these expeditions are usually named for the ship. You had the Discovery, and now you have the Terra Nova. And this is a printed postcard on the left from 1912 after the ex expedition. And on the right, 
you are already seeing what happens because this is in memory of the Antarctic heroes from 1912. The Terra Nova expedition is led by Scott, takes place between 1910 and 1913. He wanted to build on what they had done, especially in terms of the science of that expedition. And of course, now he was going to make a run for the pole. He decided he wanted to get to the, to the South Pole on this expedition as well. This is Herbert Ponting's photograph of the Terra Nova held up for the first time in ice. She's stuck in the ice here. On December 11th, 1910, another Ponting photograph on the right, same thing. Terra Nova held up in the pack, an ice bollard in the foreground, December 13th. The Terra Nova departs New Zealand on November 29th, 1910. By December 10th, the Terra Nova has met the southern pack ice, and she's stuck. She's halted. And she remains in the ice for, for 20 days before she can actually break clear. This is Pontine's photograph on the left, the Terra Nova and a berg at Icefoot, January 16, 1911. And this is Pontine's photograph on the right, the Terra Nova anchored in McMurdo Sound from 1911. What some people, modern historians, only realized later was that Ponting wasn't the only guy taking photographs. Robert Falcon Scott took photographs, and today they've been published. These are two photographs by Scott. He's showing you the shelter built uh, during the Terra Nova expedition. This time he didn't build the hut at Hut Point near McMurdo Station. He went a little bit north to Cape Evans. Today, if you hear somebody say Scott's hut, this is the hut they're talking about at Cape Evans, not the other one, the earlier one for discovery. It was this uh, hut was abandoned eventually uh, in 1913 after the um, tragic demise of uh, Scott and his men. But you can go to these huts and they're still filled with all the provisions and canned goods and things. It's like a time, they're like a time capsule. They're spooky. But, and they've all been conserved today. Conservators have gone to these huts and actually tried to preserve the mustard jar, or every little object, you know, every moccasin, every snow boot, everything that was in there, and they're really quite remarkable. On the right is a photograph that Scott snapped of Mount Erebus in the distance. This is the world's southernmost active volcano. Uh, he took this picture in the winter of 1911. So Terra Nova arrives at Ross Island on January 4th, 1911. He establishes his winter headquarters at Cape Evans, the ship is offloaded. Here's a Pontine photograph of some of the officers of the Terra Nova from 1910. Pontine becomes such a superb photographer, not just of the, the landscape, but of the various individual members. I'm not going to go through and read all the names of these individuals, but these were essentially the senior officers on the, on the mission, on the expedition. Here is uh, Ponting's photograph of Lawrence Oates, Captain Oates, and his Siberian ponies aboard the Terra Nova, December 10, 1910. On this expedition, remember the trouble he had had with the dogs on the previous expedition. But nonetheless, on this expedition, Scott brings 34 dogs, 19 ponies, and three mechanical sledges. They're like tractors, thinking he's going to use all, all three of these things. The man who was in charge of the ponies was Oates, who was an army man, not a navy man. This is interesting because this causes, when Scott makes a decision who's going to go to the pole with him, you normally would take, it would be four, 
but he takes five. And some people think this was a tragic mistake. He adds one guy that wasn't expected. But many people think he chose Oates, who wasn't, wasn't in fact in the best shape at this point because he had suffered a wound in the Boer War and it had affected his thigh. And he, in fact, had, one leg was a, an inch lower than the, uh, uh, higher than the other leg. But Scott had this etiquette thing <laughs> and he thought I should have a guy from the army. Uh, so that's probably why he chose Oates. They didn't really get along that well, and a lot of the discussion was about the horses. Shackleton, Scott knew that Shackleton had used ponies on the Nimrod expedition in 1907, and on that expedition, Shackleton went further than Scott. He got to 112 miles of the pole. So Scott thought, I'm going to take ponies um, as well, but we'll only use them up to the base of the glacier. There are three things. You have to go off the, the ice shelf, then the glacier, and then you're on the polar plateau. It's a three-part journey. Um, but of course, the, the, the ponies were useless. Um, <clears throat> they were too heavy, and their feet were too small, so they kept sinking into the, into the snow. Uh, they were horrible at trying to sort of um, organize for, for work. Because they're horses, and they sweat, um, that would freeze. And they had to constantly be wrapped up in blankets and things of this nature. They tried to create a kind of um, snowshoe for the horses to keep them above the ice, but that, that didn't work. So uh, especially bad was the fact that they became easily soaked with perspiration during any kind of exertion. And that necessitated all of this kind of wrapping them in blankets to avoid hypothermia through evaporation. The, the dogs are different. And this is what Amundsen understood. Dogs sweat through their paws. And where they really are sort of uh, dealing with the cold is by panting. So dogs were a better choice than, than, than ponies. And very soon, Scott learned that. Here are some of the ponies on the upper left. And then on the, on the right is one of these motorized sledges that Scott brought with him. He brought uh, three of these, but he didn't bring a mechanic. Uh, and they broke down almost immediately, and they were basically useless. So the dogs weren't working, the ponies weren't working out, the sledge wasn't working out, the motorized sledge, and he, the British were not great dog handlers. Uh, so that was the problem. What Scott was going to rely on is what you see in this lower left photograph, what is called man hauling. Men would pull the sledges. And for Scott, this gets us back to this British thing. He thought this was the most noble thing. Not to go by dog, not to have dogs or ponies or sledges or, or I mean motorized tractors, but to pull the sleds ourselves. Uh, he called this the noble art of man hauling. Now this is brutal. Uh, man hauling is brutal for a variety of reasons. In any case, he brings the dogs, the ponies, the, the motorized sledges, but he relies almost exclusively on man hauling. The ponies could not ascend the glacier, as he predicted. Amundsen was different. Amundsen brought 97 Greenland dogs. That's all he brought. And Amundsen was convinced the dogs could get up the glacier. He just knew they could, and they did. <laughs> they could negotiate the glacier. Uh, and if you had the right head dog, the right lead dog, to take the other dogs through, 
he got up through that glacier in almost no time. So that was a different, I'm going to come back to these differences a little bit uh, later. Amundsen also knew I'm going to have to butcher these dogs on the way to feed to the other dogs and to the men as well. And this was another British thing. <laughs> Scott couldn't fathom the idea of killing ponies and dogs. Amundsen knew that their survival depended on the fact that they would have to butcher these dogs on their way up. That's why he brought 97 of them. He came back with 11. Um, the rest were killed. And the most famously, at one point in his, in his expedition, he knows that this, he had this calculated to the nth dog. He knows we're at this location now, getting to the glacier. I am going to have to butcher 24 dogs at one time. And he did. That place came to be known as the butcher shop. The Norwegians didn't want to kill the dogs, obviously. By that time, everybody had grown fond of them. But you don't want to die with a dog either. So, so the Norwegians, uh, in fact, did that. When they arrive, when the Scott expedition arrives, they divide up into teams, into different parties. And each party has a different scientific mission. So this is the South Party here, photographed here. That was the Scott Party. And this was the party that would make the, the run for the pole. No, it's hardly a run. The trek for the pole. The, there was a northern party. And they had different obligations. And there was a western party. So he divided up his crew. He had brought 65 men. He divided them up into these three different teams, each with a different mission. But the South Pole party was this party. And they were, they were the ones that were going to make the run eventually for the, uh, for the pole. Now, here's where Scott is also different. Scott, his interest in this expedition, I would say first, was not getting to the pole. It was science. He brought a whole boatload of scientists. Um, he was interested in doing science, having and returning with all of this remarkable data. Certainly, he wanted to get to the pole. And certainly, he wanted to get there before Amundsen. But the motivation for Scott was the science. And to this day, if you talk to any polar historians, scientists, the information and the data and the experiments and all the things that the Scott party brought back are the basis for Antarctic science today. So you have to give them that. Amundsen, his philosophy was, I'm getting to the pole and getting home. Uh, we're going to make a race to the pole. It was more like a guerrilla operation. Instead of 65 men, he takes nine. Five go to the pole. Four he leaves back, five go to the pole. He gets there, turns around, and comes back. Uh, gets on the ship, it's waiting for him, I'm home. Um, I'll talk more about that in, 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 as we get along. This is the, the southern party again with Scott in the center, April 13th, 1911. This is a these are all photographs by Ponting. One of the things you did before the journey is during the good weather, you had to go lay your depots. So you would go on this journey and you would depot food every so far that you would be depending on coming back to hit these depots, that that would be your survival. So you would lay supplies as you go along the way. And another potential mistake here of Scott was the, the most important depot, which would be the last one these guys would have to hit coming back, was called the one-ton depot. He laid a little bit too close to the hut as opposed, it should have been a little bit further up, as I'm saying. 
And as a result, when this party perished, they were 11 miles from that depot. That would have probably saved their lives. Here's the, uh, what it looked like in the hut. Uh, these are Pontine photographs. On the left, it was called the tenements. The, the men called this the tenements. That was their bunks in the winter quarters. We can, everybody here is identifiable. Um, and on the right, they're mending their sleeping bags. You had to know how to sew. You had to, you have to, you had to be a jack of all trades uh, if you were on these expeditions. Here is Pontine's photograph, Captain Scott's birthday dinner, June 6, 1911. This is a rare moment of relaxation, celebration, and Scott writes in his journal, quote, June 6, my birthday, a fact I might easily have forgotten, but my kind people did not. We sat down to a sumptuous spread with our sledge banners hung about us. Everyone was very festive and amiably appreciative. Again, we can identify everybody here in this um, photograph. Here is Scott at his keeping his journal. This is one of the most famous photographs of Robert Falcon Scott. It's by Ponting, Captain Scott writing his journal in the Winter Quarters Hut from October 7th, 1911. We can see uh, pictures of his wife and son are on the wall behind him. Uh, three weeks after this photograph was taken on November 1st, uh, the expedition, he set out on that ill-fated expedition for the South Pole. This man is pivotal to the, to the mission before and during, and in some ways even after. This is uh, George Clark Simpson. He was the meteorologist, and he was a member of the Terra Nova expedition. He was nicknamed Sonny Jim because actually he had a resemblance to a uh, British character on a cereal box. The planning for the South Pole required on good weather and Simpson's calculations about what the weather would be that they would encounter were pivotal. Scott had tremendous admiration for Simpson. They were very close. And Simpson was able to calculate uh, these, when, what the wind would be, what the temperature would be when they were on various parts of the plateau, et cetera. And Scott took these calculations very seriously. Uh, so this is Dr. Simpson at work in the magnetic hut at the winter quarters, July, January 5th, both of these photographs. Ultimately, the weather on that return um, expedition, on the return in that expedition, was worse than anybody had ever predicted. And so part of the reason the Scott party perished was because they encountered weather that would probably only occur in Ant the Antarctic once every 25 years. And they hit it, and nobody could have predicted that. In fact, when Scott is writing in his when he's died, they're dying, and he's still writing in his journal. He, he knows that Simpson is going to probably think, gee, I screwed up. Uh, I should have been able to tell that the weather was going to be really bad. But in fact, Scott writes a very interesting thing. He says, nobody could have predicted this weather. And I think in a certain way, he's trying to make sure Simpson doesn't take it personally. Like, geez, they're dead because I screwed up on the weather. Uh, that kind of thing. Here is uh, Lieutenant Evans on the left observing an occultation of Jupiter, June 8, 1911. And that has to be done in conjunction with the photograph on the right, which is George Simpson on the telephone. He's talking to the 
to the lieutenant who's outside, and they're timing the occultation of Jupiter. An occultation is when one object in the heavens goes in front of another, sort of like an eclipse. Uh, and they were calculating the one of Jupiter here, which uh, also has to be done with a sidereal clock. So that clock here is a sidereal clock uh, which keeps time by the stars, not by the sun. Uh, and so th these two photographs go to together because they're working together, one inside and one, uh, one outside. This is what I mean again by the science. Scott was very interested in the science. Uh, here's the march south beginning on November 1st with these mixed transports, motorized sledges, dogs, horses. Everything was going wrong. They were traveling at different speeds. Things were breaking down. They continue to press on. This photo on the left was taken on December 2nd, more than a month into the expedition. By this time, almost all the ponies were dead, uh, and they had really not gotten very far. On the right, you see the man hauling a loaded sledge uh, going towards the Beardmore Glacier. And these are both photographs by Scott. Here's Ponting. An Adeli penguin wanders across the pack ice in the Ross dependency. These guys love the penguins. And the penguins seem to like them. They would often go amidst all these penguins and kind of just uh, freak the penguins out. This is Ponting, the face of the Matterhorn Berg on the left from 1911, October 8th. And on the right, Bergs and Flow off Cape Evans, March 7th. These are among the greatest photographs of Antarctic ever taken. Here's the Castleberg, this formation that looked actually like a castle. The Castleberg with dog sledge on the left from September 17, 1911. And on the right, you see that one lonely guy there. This is Thomas Clissold and the huge ice bastions of the Castleberg. So it's the same structure, the same iceberg. Thomas Clissold was the cook <laughs> on the expedition. Uh, he did not take part in the expedition's main attempt to reach the pole. But he did go on one of the depot laying missions, where they were laying the depots. He did go on one of those missions. Uh, he sustained a severe concussion, though, when he fell from an iceberg. And in fact, he fell from an iceberg while he was posing for a photograph by Ponting. Uh, I don't know if Ponting said, just go back a little, uh, 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 during the summer of 1911, 1912. And then he had to actually be replaced by a different man who came in as the cook later. Here's a photograph, one of the most famous that I've already shown you on the left with the Russian Anton Omelchinok stands at the end of the Barn Glacier, Glacier. And on the right, a man stops atop the Matterhornberg with active volcano Mount Erebus. That's in the background. That's the volcano from October 8, 1911. Again, the photograph on the left is among the most famous photographs ever taken of Antarctica. And what people don't realize is that Ponting actually photographed the other one on the, on the right. He went to the other side. But this is a grotto in a berg, Terra Nova in the distance. You can see the Terra Nova off in the distance, the ship, the men, this grotto. This came to be called Aladdin's Cave by Ponting. And everybody knows the photograph on the left. But in fact, he did walk to photograph the one on the right, which was the other side, which is a photograph you don't see that often. By this time, Ponting is becoming really a pioneer of classic Antarctic photography. Uh, he talked about the cave as, uh, quote, a symphony in blue and green. There was color photography here, but it hadn't advanced very far. I'll show you some color photographs 
a little bit down the road. Here is Roald Amundsen, uh, the great Norwegian explorer. This guy leads the first expedition to traverse the Northwest Passage by sea in 1903 to 1906. He's the first guy to go to the pole, at least North Pole, at least by air, in 1926. And he leads the first expedition to the South Pole in 1911 in competition with Robert Falcon Scott. They both knew they were on the plane going towards the pole. When we say a race to the pole, I, I think that's somewhat of an exaggeration. Certainly, Scott wanted to get to the pole, no question, and he wanted to beat Amundsen. But because of his interest in science, he was taking a lot of time to collect rocks and do all this other stuff, just like the lunar astronauts. They brought back all these rocks. So he was racing, but it wasn't in the traditional sense, where I don't care about anything else. I'm getting to the pole. Amundsen, that was Amundsen's, um, that was Amundsen's approach. So I think I'm going to stop here, and we'll pick up with this competition and between Amundsen and Scott, and who got to the pole first and why, and how it went bad for Robert Falcon Scott. We'll do that on uh, on Thursday. Thanks, everybody. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.